Hey guys, this is an audio version of an essay that I wrote for Fusion.net a while back that really caused a big stir because it was an article about how YouTubers make money, which is apparently a thing that people don't like to talk about. So some of the information in this audio essay is a little dated, just in terms of like my Instagram numbers have grown since this recording. You can congratulate me on Instagram for uh, my increasing popularity. (laughs) Uh, But other than that, it is a very clear snapshot of what it is like to be a YouTuber making money. In fact, This article that was on Fusion was the inspiration for this entire podcast. So what you are about to hear is the audio version of the essay that began it all. Thanks. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's bad with money with Gabby. Done. It was all so painfully awkward. That night, Brittany Ashley, a lesbian stoner in red lipstick, was at Evely, a popular farm-to-table spot in West Hollywood. The restaurant was hosting BuzzFeed's Golden Globes party. For the past two years... Ashley has been one of the most visible actresses on the company's four YouTube channels, which altogether have about 17 million subscribers. She stars in body videos with titles like How to Win the Breakup or Masturbation, Guys vs. Girls, many of which rack up millions of views. The awkward part was that Ashley wasn't there to celebrate with BuzzFeed. She was there to serve them. Not realizing that her handful of weekly waitressing shifts at Evely paid most of her bills, a coworker from the video production site asked Ashley if her serving tray was a bit. It was not. The question sent Ashley into a depressive spiral. Hers just wasn't the breezy, glamorous life people expected from her. Customers had approached her at work before starstruck but confused. Why would someone with 90,000 Instagram followers be serving brunch? Simple. Because Ashley needed the money. As she put it, As I started having more visibility on the internet, I had to scale back on serving people. Her wallet took the hit, and so did her pride. My coworkers would tell me a table of kids was freaking out about seeing me, and I'm like, what, am I going to say hi and take a picture in my work uniform? The disconnect between internet fame and financial security is hard to comprehend for both creators and fans. But it's the crux of many mid-level web personalities' lives. Take moderately successful YouTubers, for example. Connor Manning, an LGBT vlogger with 87,000 subscribers, was recognized six times selling memberships at the Baltimore Aquarium. People would come in and recognize me all the time for my videos. There have been a few times where it's like a line, I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't. As soon as I enter a job, like, I put my internet stuff on my resume, like, when I'm applying to stuff. I just, I'd put out there, I'm like, this is a thing. This is something that I do. Um, you should be aware of it. Rosiana Halsey Rojas, who has her own books and lifestyle channel and is also YouTube King John Green's producing partner, has had people freak out at her top man register. Rachel Whitehurst, whose beauty and sexuality vlog has 160,000 subscribers, was forced to quit her job at Starbucks because fans memorized her schedule. In other words, many famous social media stars are too visible to have real jobs, but too broke not to. (laughs) 
Platforms like YouTube mirror the U.S. economy's yawning wealth gap, and being a part of YouTube's middle class often means grappling daily with the cognitive dissonance of a full comments section and an empty wallet. Journalists fell over stars like Swedish gamer PewDiePie, whose net worth is around $12 million, or comedian Jenna Marbles, who is worth $2.5 million. On the other extreme, fan funding sites like Patreon, which is a Kickstarter-type site that allows for ongoing funding, are at the center of a communal movement to fund smaller YouTubers. But that definition gets blurry. Is someone with 50,000 subscribers worth supporting financially? How about 200,000? What if people assume you're too successful to need money and you're too proud to tell them otherwise? Nobody knows all of this better than me. I'm 28 years old and have been building an online following for 10 years, beginning with a popular live journal I wrote in high school. Yeah, I wrote a live journal. I had a lot of friends. A couple years ago, after moving to Los Angeles, I made the transition from freelance writing to creating online video. The channel I have with my best friend, Allison Raskin, just between us, has more than 700,000 subscribers and a hungry fan base. We're a two-person video creation machine. When we're not producing and starring in a comedy sketch and advice show, we're writing the episodes, dealing with business contracts and deals, and running our company, Gallison LLC, which we registered officially a few months ago. And yet, despite this success, for a long time we were just barely scraping by. Allison and I make money from ads that play before our videos, from freelance writing and acting gigs, and from brand deals on YouTube or Instagram. But it's not enough to live, and its influx is unpredictable. Our channel exists in that YouTube no-man's land. Brands think we're too small to sponsor, but fans think we're too big for donations. Up until a few months ago, I never had more than a couple thousand dollars in my bank account at once. My Instagram has 403,000 followers, but I've never made $403,000 in my life collectively. The high highs and low lows leave me reeling. One week, I was stopped for photos six times while perusing comic books in downtown L.A. The next week, I sat faceless in a room of 40 people vying for a menial courier job. I've walked a red carpet with $80 in my bank account. Here's popular YouTube musician Megan Tonjes talking about her performance at VidCon's main stage last year. I remember performing on the main stage and you have thousands of people who, even if they don't know you, they're still so excited to see you. And I had this like these incredible performances where I was like with friends and you get so much feedback from all the other creators and people are crying and like holding their phones up as, you know, to, to light the room. And um, there's a very real moment where I went back to my hotel room and I looked at my bank account and I was like, am I going to have enough money to afford groceries the next week? Every other week, Tonjis, who is 29, debates getting another job, but wonders how she'd have the time to keep up her three channels on top of a 9-to-5. Her vlog and music channels, which have amassed around 300,000 subscribers, take up more than enough hours to be her full-time job. Surveying her future employment options in Sherman Oaks recently... Tan just said, I don't know that someone coming to my channel that's looking to hire me would be really impressed by my videos about like squirting or or like a video called Fat Girls Give Great Blowjobs. Right. Like I'm the first one to talk about body shaming, transphobia, homophobia, right. sexism. That's not something that people aren't looking for personalities to be cashiers at their bookstore. You know, they're looking for people that show up to work and don't question things and do their job. 
That means get rich or die trying. And not only on the internet. With American middle class jobs shrinking and wages stagnating, lots of us feel like if we don't want to be poor, we have to make millions. These economic patterns began decades ago, and the starving artist versus sellout paradigm has existed since time immemorial. Countless artists from Van Gogh to Modigliani never got to enjoy their legacy's fame and fortune. But thankfully, Van Gogh didn't have to shill for Audible.com to piss off fans of his paintings. And like many other areas of the economy, YouTube has a basic supply and demand problem. Everybody wants to be there, so fledgling performers put up with a lot because they want to be famous. The truth is, if you have a million people waiting behind you for your job, then no one really has to treat you well. That's economist Jody N. Beggs, a lecturer at Northeastern University. She likened trying to get famous through social media to shilling out money for college. In each case, one suffers through hard work and zero to negative income in hopes of a later payout. The difference with YouTube is that it's more accessible because there's no admissions committee. The technical term for this is the Dunning-Kruger effect, where unskilled individuals believe themselves to be more adept than they actually are. It's not really surprising that the failure rate on YouTube would be higher because people aren't usually good judges of their own abilities. The result is that the market is oversaturated, and subscriber numbers, which rarely make sense, become the gatekeepers of financial success. It's doubly frustrating in the YouTube economy because its workers can't even admit that these dynamics exist. Even though it correlates with American economic trends, it plays by the social norms of the internet. Online culture has often placed emphasis on both social justice and purity, or at the very least, humility. While watching makeup tutorials by a YouTuber named Jaclyn Hill, Beggs noticed a pattern of apologizing in Hill's videos. Every time Hill gets something nice, like a Valentino purse in one video, she offers caveats like, I know it's a big splurge, I'm so sorry. Again, economist Jody Beggs. We see in other economic realms it's the opposite. For example, rappers are bragging about their money in music videos and that works fine for them. Elsewhere, the trend is to show off wealth. That would be a major faux pas on YouTube. Whereas we're used to a CEO being a millionaire, a popular YouTuber's business is predicated on, hey, I'm just like you. That means fans don't want to see that you're explicitly on the hustle. Whether they realize it or not, they dictate our every financial move. Every time Allison and I post a branded video, which are our YouTuber's bread and butter, we make money, but we lose subscribers. A video we created for a skincare line, for instance, drew ire from fans writing, enough with the product placement, despite this being our third branded video ever. One dismissively chided us, gotta get that YouTube money, I guess, with no acknowledgement of the two years of free videos we'd released prior. Another told us they hated ads because they had, quote, high expectations of us. Allison and I have turned down products for all kinds of reasons. One time, it was a CEO who made sexist comments, or it's not something we'd really use, like beard oil. But it all comes down to pleasing the viewers. The con is loss of income. The pro is the trust of our fans. Sometimes this coveted intimacy can ding our bank accounts. In a 2013 speech, Chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, Alan Kruger, said the increase of knowledge about a performer's life and beliefs due to social media has led to not being able to charge as much for concert tickets. Most people do not want to think of their favorite singer as greedy, he said. Would you rather listen to a singer who is committed to social causes you identify with or one who is only in it for the money? If an artist, a YouTuber or an Instagram star, for instance, is committed to championing the little guy, they can't very well look like they're taking money for their work. 
YouTuber Anna Akana, fed up with commenters calling her a sellout, posted a video last June explaining how without brand deals, YouTubers literally can't survive. Did you know that the word sellout is used exclusively for people in the entertainment industry? Isn't that weird, considering that it's also the hardest industry to make a living in? And normally, when people get promoted, we celebrate. We, like, throw them parties. Surprise! We're all so excited because it's a sign that they're doing well. My boss offered me a big promotion at work today. Oh, babe, that's great. Maybe we can look into buying a house next year. I didn't take it, Brad. What do you think I am? A fucking sellout? Akana has hit 1 million subscribers by creating a podcast, designing a clothing line, and yes, taking money for sponsored videos. Some fans understood and defended YouTubers needing to make money. Others vowed to never watch her again. Some of us are able to maintain relative purity by minimizing our cost of living. Social justice vlogger Kat Black is one of the only people I follow on social media who talks about her real life without making it seem glamorous. Her videos have low overhead and little production value. She doesn't own a car and lives outside LA in a cheaper area. This is good financially, but it limits her ability to collaborate and grow her channel. Black, however, views YouTube as a platform for other opportunities, like speaking about trans issues all over the country, illustrating original merch, or making videos for sites like Pride.com and Everyday Feminism. It's symbiotic. She needs these outside gigs to keep up her channel, and she needs her channel to get these gigs. As Black put it, Having a lot of subscribers does not mean that you're Gucci all the time. You have to reach the point where you're getting other opportunities outside of YouTube as well. For the few of us who do make a middle-class income, the answer is to say fuck it and do as many brand deals as possible. Rachel Whitehurst said she has at least 15 different sources of income. One is the Amazon Affiliates program, where she shouts out things she's bought on Amazon and gets commission if the fans buy it using her code. But because it's view-based and click-based, it's not a stable income. And her checks only come once a month, which leaves her waiting. Other YouTubers make money by relying on rage clicks, saying something inflammatory for the purposes of press and views. Take Dear Fat People, a fat-shaming tirade by YouTuber... We're bleeping her name because we don't want to give her any more rage clicks. Dear Fat People made so much money that... Bleep, bleep, bleep posted a Snapchat counting $50 bills. But she also lost some of her branded deals and got blacklisted by the tight-knit YouTube community. Of course, for every brand that pulls out, another brand will want to buy those rage clicks. So there are plenty of vloggers who traffic in them. There are endless ways to sell your soul on YouTube. And the fact is, if you choose not to do any of it, you lose out. Making YouTube videos is intensely isolating even if you manage to keep your integrity intact. The production is a bare-bones affair. The community is geographically diffuse. Because of this, it feels like YouTubers talk to each other about money even less than the average co-workers would. The humiliation of not making a living wage when fans believe you're famous adds an extra layer of silence. As Rosiana Halsey Rojas put it, There's shame in admitting you're in debt. Um, it makes you feel like an idiot and like you've made bad choices. And yet failing to talk about money hurts our bottom line. At one point, the most Allison and I had made combined on a deal was $6,000, and 30% of that went to our multi-channel network, Studio 71. I've learned that others with fewer subscribers make twice that. A lack of communication leads to a lack of standard pricing. Some companies really take advantage of the lack of transparency um, with sponsorship deals. Like some, One creator may accept $4,000 for a job, another creator may accept $20,000. 
Ross believes there's flawed distribution of wealth because a small handful of creators have YouTube structural support. Appearances on the popular page, appearances in YouTube Red series, billboards, and so that boosts their visibility and their views. Plus, more channels are using AdSense, which is Google's way of monetizing ads before videos, so that leaves less money to go around. Money anxiety is a deep and long-time trigger for me. I've almost quit just between us a few times, once after spending hours hysterically crying in my parked car because I wasn't sure how I was going to make rent. My parents couldn't help me financially because they had their own problems. I'd already sold some of my old clothing at Crossroads and Buffalo Exchange. I eventually confided in Allison, and she's taken on the lion's share of paying our film crew. One day, I'll pay her back in full. She jokes that it'll be when we get a TV show. But if I weren't sharing the channel, I wouldn't have been able to afford to keep making videos for free. Not a hint of this psychic stress ended up on Just Between Us. There's a huge amount of emotional labor inherent in being an online personality. I have to seem carefree and flawless and surrounded by friends. I can get quote-unquote real, but I can't bum anyone out. A picture of me out to brunch in Los Feliz will get more likes than a video of me searching for quarters in my car. Authenticity is valued, but in small doses. YouTubers are allowed to have struggled in the past tense because overcoming makes us brave and relatable. But we can't be struggling now because then we're labeled whiners. When Asen O'Neill, an 18-year-old Instagram star, quit social media for being fake to much praise, I mostly felt pissed off. Yeah, it's easy for her to quit and renege on all her sponsorships, I thought. She must have made her money already, or she's not under contract to keep a video up for a year no matter how much fans hate it. She must have a safety net already to just be able to stop. Whereas if I don't keep up the charade and post this Instagram photo of a fun autumn basket of goodies, I will not eat for a week. And this is why I've been hesitant to reveal anything publicly. Frankly, I'm worried about the money I'll lose. And after the publication of the print version of this essay, we did lose money. A brand didn't want to work with Allison and I because they felt because of the article our sponsored content was tainted. So what does this mean for my future as a creator? I either have to go at it the old-fashioned way, get hired to write on a TV show or movie, go on auditions, which is his own full-time job, or I have to stop making stuff for the internet. My time will hopefully be taken up with some kind of real job if I can find one. Aspiring vloggers may want to think about getting business degrees because that's what being famous online is. It's protecting your assets, budgeting, figuring out production costs, rationing out money to employees, whether that's yourself or a camera crew. The numbers on your social media accounts may never match those in your bank account. The internet may always be equated to the future, but for most social media stars, it ends up being a stepping stone to the same old metrics of success, if you're lucky. Until my happy ending, the mindfuck continues. Last Thanksgiving, I left my family's dinner table to fly to New York City late Thursday night and shoot a branded video all day Friday with Allison. The pay was too good to pass up, so I used some of my earnings to finally pay Allison back for our past shoots. Our task? 
a man-on-the-street-style video in which we convince people to go home and spend time with their families. The irony was not lost on me. Below the video reads one of the top comments dripping with sarcasm. This may be a long shot, but I'm thinking this video is sponsored. Another top user was more succinct. Sellouts. Thanks for listening to Bad With Money. This is an audio version of an essay I wrote for Fusion.net, which you should absolutely read. If you like the show, please rate us in iTunes, subscribe, and tell all your friends who are also bad with money. Also tell Prince William and Prince Harry if you know them. We are part of the Panoply Network. Our producer is Sam Dingman, Laura Mayer is Panoply's Director of Production, and Andy Bowers is our Chief Content Officer. Our engineer is Jeremy Underwood. Original music for our show was composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen, and it is performed by Sam Barbera. Our show art is by Cameron Glavin. I'm Gabby Dunn, and I will talk to you next time.